Buenos dias, humanity-centered artificial intelligence. My name is Natalie Post, and this is the Human-Centered AI Podcast, where we talk with AI industry leaders about how they're bringing the technology into practice elegantly, efficiently, and ethically. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tad Slav, who's product owner management information at Suit Supply. And we'll dive into best practices for establishing AI initiatives, really focusing on how to identify use case opportunities, getting buying from the business, and designing the technical architecture. But before we do so, Tad, could you give a little bit of an introduction about yourself and your background? Sure. So my name is Tad Slaff. I'm currently the product owner for management information at Suit Supply. So effectively, the scope of my role is I own all of the data, the reporting, and either own the analytics or heavily support the analytics teams doing the work. And from a product perspective, my product is the data platform, uh, which is all built out in the cloud. We're, we're using Azure for that. So I got my start in the data analytics and the AI space back in when I was in university. I happened to read a book about how algorithms were changing the world. This was maybe 2008, 2000, I guess 2009, 2010-ish. And at that stage, um, uh, my primary interest was in the algorithmic and automated trading space. And so I want to say that studies took a little bit of a, a backseat and, and really focused on teaching myself how to program to build automated strategies in the um, commodities, foreign exchange, futures, a little options. And that naturally led to me exploring data analytics, uh, data science, and this was a little bit before the buzzwords they are today, but that really kicked off the, the interest that, and, that I still have, and obviously in a different domain than, than when I started, but a lot of the same underlying principles and a lot of the same techniques are, are the same and transferable. So yeah, it's strange looking back that I've already been in the space about I guess 10 years now, yeah. cutting close on to, but um, yeah, it's really been really great to see the amount of adoption and the amount of interest that, that's grown in the last couple of years. Yeah, so professionally, I know you made a few steps. What did you do exactly? Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure, so I was able to leverage my interests when I was in university in the um, kind of quantitative finance space into a job at a, at a brokerage firm um, right when I left university. And this was a really interesting role that, that I credit with a lot of my experience. Effectively, it summarize, boils down to me being a, a quant for hire. And so a lot of the, the value proposition for this particular brokerage, it was smaller, more niche, was that if you use them as, as your, um, your execution partner, they would provide uh, myself and my colleagues to go and sit down next to next to whoever the, the client would be and help with whatever sort of quantitative analysis, automation, risk analysis that, that the, their clients needed. So the typical client would be uh, professional traders, smaller, smaller hedge funds, commodity traders. And so it was a really great experience, especially being fairly new in my career, traveling around, seeing everyone who was very experienced in their particular domain. You know, these guys were had it, uh, funds that were, you know, in the low end, hundreds of thousands of dollars up to tens of millions, and then being able to see that, yeah, they had a lot of the domain expertise, they really knew what they were talking about, but when it came to more of the quantitative side, generally they, they, um, they didn't, didn't really know too much, and so a lot of my time was spent trying to translate their, their knowledge into some sort of automated system, as I mentioned, whether it was automating a strategy, 
doing some risk analysis, um, creating portfolios, that type of work. Yeah, great. And so, born out of that, one of the consistent themes that I that I kept seeing was that a lot of them really there was an appetite to leverage these types of techniques. I think, particularly in finance, the writing was on the wall pretty early that that this was the way that the world was moving, and a lot of these these guys, even though they didn't have a technical background, they didn't want to be left behind when it came to that space. And so. I kept seeing reoccurring need and a really um, a pattern for them wanting to leverage these tools themselves without having to rely on someone like me. That um, that they would you know have to only use on limited basis or have to pay for or whatever it may be. So born out of that, um, I left and, and started a financial technology company with the aim of developing a platform that would allow these professional traders and investors to leverage machine learning and analytics themselves without needing any technical experience. Yeah, and what year was that exactly? Ooh, that's a good question. I think that was around 20, must have been 2015. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. 2015, 2014, yeah. Actually, no, so I think it was yeah early 2014 now that I, now that okay. I think about it, yeah. So kind of before it all boomed around yeah, machine exa learning. Exactly. So a lot of our time was around education and, yeah. and really the, the, the theme and our, our value proposition was uh, quantifying your intuition. Yeah. So how can we take that deep level of domain expertise that these traders and investors had after spending usually decades working in the markets and being able to, to quantify that. So a lot of the techniques that we use were variation of association rule learning and on ensembles of algorithms on the back end that would allow them to visualize the patterns that the algorithms are able to find and still be able to use their own input and their own experience to, to try to get the best of both worlds. Yeah. And what caused the transition from doing that to the role afterwards, which was, if I remember correctly, at Accenture, right? Yeah. And yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think... Uh, the experience as running my own startup wasn't as financially rewarding as we would have hoped, <laughs> but I think uh, the experience was, was incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, so after a couple years of, of doing that, we unfortunately had to had to roll up um, roll up that, and then I joined Accenture's um, advanced analytics practice within their digital analytics, and so that was a really interesting role. Um, you know, it was a kind of a big swing from working with you know five or six of us at a small startup to now. I was aligned to financial services, so working with some of the largest banks and really seeing and helping them stand up their data analytics and, and data science teams. And so as a really wide variety of roles, um, either helping from a platform perspective of, of how do you develop one of these big data platforms when <clears throat> even a couple years ago, a lot of them, there were still some security concerns, and so a lot of them were mm -hmm. building in-house, so a lot of technical challenges um, in terms of building those. Um, really helping facilitate interactions between the business and the data science teams. And then also building in-house applications that were leveraging machine learning and AI to help internal teams uh, operate more efficiently. Yeah. And so then um, did that for a couple years and, and I really think uh, consulting is a, is a great experience. You, you learn a lot, work with a lot of smart, smart people. Um, but then personally I was looking for a new challenge and looking to move abroad. So. Um, Took a little bit of a risk, came to Amsterdam, and ended up in my current role at Suit Supply for about the almost exactly one year ago. Oh wow! Yeah, no, that's. I mean, your journey is quite impressive. <laughs> I mean, especially when you look at 
how early on you were involved in everything, but also from uh, your experience within Accenture, you must have learned a lot from working with all these different companies in how they think about analytics initiatives and uh, what route to take in establishing those. Um, so do you remember your first really project machine learning within that role? And yeah, how it went. Yeah, so originally I was joined. I joined to help stand up a center of excellence that was a partnership between the digital digital analytics practice and the finance and risk. So how can we leverage some more of these advanced analytics um, techniques for finance and risk use cases? And you know, and going into it, it sounds oh, we're going to be building all these amazing models, and I can't wait to uh, get my hands on the data mm -hmm. and working with all these smart people, but. Pretty early on, really, we saw by far the biggest need and the biggest challenge, even before we could even start thinking about what are what are some of these offerings that we could provide to the finance risk clients, was that there was just so many challenges and, and so much work to be done in the data management space. Mm. And so it wasn't an area that I had had a lot of experience in coming into the role, but once you really start talking to, to financial services companies, there's a lot of regulations around how you can use data, PII, um, data governance, data masking, how do you access, who can control the data, who's the owner of the data, not even to mention the typical data science issues around data quality, data yeah. freshness, combining data from different sources. And so a lot of the, the work that I did initially was around, yeah, um, we called it metadata management. Okay. So really how can we leverage um, automated tools or vendors in the market or developing in-house that would help with data profiling, data governance, data security, data, data cleansing, um, and have all those pieces fit together and provide a more holistic solution. So yeah. I think that was a good crash course in, in the realities <laughs> of data science and, and AI where it works all in good if you're working on a, in a sandbox or on test data or some very limited scale POC. But once you start looking into, all right, how do we actually get this in production? How are we going to really generate business value? There's a lot that goes into it that someone with a traditional data science background, when I, in that sense, I mean, you know, usually a PhD or master's in a very mm. highly technical field, wouldn't really necessarily think about, wouldn't have a lot of experience with. And then the big gap we saw was that the people coming from the business side or people that did have that traditional background in, in data governance, data security, didn't necessarily understand the AI or machine learning end, and so there was always this need to bridge the gap and, and make sure everyone is speaking the same language and had the same goals and and knew where the project was going for this you know technical and, and inherently complex uh, space. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I mean, it seems to be one of the biggest challenges that organizations face these days: mm -hmm. bridging data science and business, and you have this emergence of all these new roles such as analytics translators, or there's a bunch of other terminology for that. But how did you deal with that? You really filled that gap in your role, or? Yeah, so I think um, it, it requires a little bit of having enough understanding of, of both sides to, to be able to at least translate and, and find the middle. I think. Really, what what we're able to help, what you're able to, what makes people successful in those types of roles, is getting alignment and getting buy-in and understanding who the key stakeholders are. And that's yeah. nothing new in the world of business. And and I think uh, you know everyone likes to say though the AI and machine learning and it's so exciting and it's really changing the world. But 
a lot of it comes down down to things like that and and you know the the added twist being there needs to be an understanding of what these underlying processes actually are and when we say machine learning what does that actually mean when you say AI what does that actually mean making sure everyone's aligned with those definitions and I think they vary from organization from organization and from by context by context and then really what is the goal of the project and and yeah. um, you know those types of, of questions which I think in other domains have been solved or a lot of research around and then but from what I saw they tended to be uh, thrown to the side a little bit when it comes to AI and machine learning. Everyone gets very excited, caught up in the hype a little bit, or, or sold on this vision of uh, these automated systems that can transform your business without really thinking about the, the less fun side of when it comes to yeah, data management, data governance, and now you also have model management, model governance, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's areas that people don't enjoy talking about quite yeah. as much as, as the latest deep learning framework or NLP library or whatever it may be. Yes. So how do you establish that alignment in your experience? Yeah, so I think in my experience, it always has to be driven by the business. And I think one of the, one of the challenges is that sometimes these can be more tech-driven in the sense that you'll have someone who, coming from a data science background or maybe has a scaled up a data science team and they're just so excited to, to, to run with what they've learned and they you know, hear about all these amazing use cases that they've read about in by their favorite uh, you know, blog or favorite article or they've read some white paper on it and they just want to get with it and run and run. And so I think you, it always has to be come back to what's the, what's the business value, what's the business problem that, that we're trying to solve. And, and I think from that perspective, that makes it a lot more clear on what the scope of the project is, how are you going to measure success, who needs to be involved, and yeah, the underlying methods and the final output really could be radically different when you're having more of these AI applications that are able to learn over time or um, automate some tasks that used to require a lot of manual effort, or providing a lot more valuable deep insights, and, and there the business value can, can really be huge. But at the end of the day, it needs to be the business saying, all right, here's the problems that we're faced, here's the opportunities that we see, and then you know, AI and machine learning is a, is a means to an end. It isn't, it isn't the end in and of itself. And I think that's kind of fundamentally the way that you have to think about it, where it seems sometimes there was a lot of, a lot of that thought that it was, oh, we're doing machine learning because it's the hot thing to do, and we don't want to be left behind, and, and you know, oh, a chatbot would be great, but at the end of the day, it's it's what what value is it? What problem is it solving? What opportunity is it seizing? Really, why are we doing this? And and I think that's really the in really the the core of it. And it seems easy and seems trivial, but getting everyone on the same page with that is really the first step. And then that really I think sets the project on a good path. And from there, it's 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 making sure that you have an understanding conceptually at the very least about what's happening and. You know, when we say machine learning, as I mentioned before, what does that actually mean? How is that going to be productionalized? Who's going to own it? Um, organizationally, who works on it? Those types of questions are, are very important. Yeah. Yeah, so when it comes to establishing use cases that are valuable for the business, how would you go about it? Or mm -hmm. how would you advise organizations to go about this? Yeah, so I think um, really coming down to it, it's, it's looking at, you know, Will AI and machine learning solve, is that the best way to solve this problem? So 
if we take an example of something like, oh, we want to build a recommender system for product recommendations, right? A very typical use case, but the goal isn't to build a recommender system, right? The goal is to be able to drive sales by you know, cross-selling effectively is yeah. what you're doing. And so then it's thinking, all right, well, if our goal is to do cross-selling, yeah, we have to be able to service up the right products for the recommendation engine, but those also need to be presented to the customer. So then you need to get, whether it's the, uh, you know, the front-end development team, they need a way to visualize it on the page, mm. um, what are the certain product segments or, product or domains, is it all customer segments, is it all product lines that we want to do this in, where do we think the greatest opportunity is, so coming at it from that business problem, and then you know the actual recommendation engine is just one 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 step in the process. And yeah, it's it's could be seen as the area that's most novel and most interesting. But um, you know, at the end of the day, that's on its own. It's not going to move the needle. It's that entire process of all right. How are we identifying the customer? Are we then being able to make intelligent recommendations? Are we then showing presenting them to the customer at the right time and in the right um, in the right place, and then how are we measuring success and improving from there? Yeah, yeah, I see. And so, once you're at that stage where you have identified a use case, how do you go about designing the technical mm -hmm. architecture? Yeah, so I think even even before you get to that, I think there's a couple other things that you really have to consider over whether AR machine learning is 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 the right tool for the job, and there are really three things I think that you need to need to um, need to consider. And is the first one is is the the problem domain tightly constrained? <clears throat> and so what I what I mean by that, if we look at an example like self driving cars, right? In that space, the 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 problem is completely open ended. You could have everything from construction to pedestrians to poor driving conditions, and that's why. It really seeing difficulties and even the, the world's largest and most advanced companies when it comes to this really struggle to do it. But if you constrain the problem to trucks driving on a freeway or even a more classical example like chess or go where there's known rules, the data doesn't change, that's really how you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for success from the beginning. And so I think when you're looking at, all right, is this the right problem for to leverage these types of techniques, that's the first question that you want to ask yourself, is do we know the, the rules of the game, so to speak? Is that going to be changing over time? Is it something that we have data on? Can we automate the process of data collection? Those are all really important ones. And then also, um, can we measure success? So at the end of the day, if you're not able to show, we used to have a, had a term called link and label, if you're not able to show that the value generated from these techniques and it's really going to be a tough sell to, to, get, to get the support from the business beyond um, a small-scale POC. So if you look at something like, oh, we want to improve B2B sales, and yeah, the sales cycle might be six months, nine months, it's really going to be hard to say valid and to justify this type of initiative if you're not able to, to really show until six months, nine months down the road that, that you're able to generate value from this. And so. When you're looking at these use cases, it's, all right, is the problem constrained? Do we have the data? Can we access the data? And then finally is, can we measure success? And so I think if you can have very clear answers for those three from the beginning, it, it really sets yourself up from success as opposed yeah. to having something that's a lot more open-ended that um, <clears throat> maybe you'd still have better solved with a dashboard or mm. you know hiring an extra analyst to be able to look at it or whatever it may be. And yeah, those may not be scalable, but um, in the short term, if the the business problem is we need to improve 
yeah. X, then that's going to be the best way to solve that particular problem. Yeah. Yeah, and so regarding the scalability, because um, I think a lot of organizations, they're getting success with POCs or, you know, little pilot projects, but then they actually struggle to plug it in and scale it. And also the whole model lifecycle management seems to be a challenge. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so if I had to summarize it into one area is is I'm not a fan of POCs. And okay. I think that might be a little controversial. And I and what I what I mean by that is I'm really a bigger proponent of MVP, which comes from the startup world and it gets thrown around a lot, but stands for a minimum viable product. And really the key here is how you're defining viable. So I think a lot of the times viable um, just means working. And in my view, that's a little bit of how I see a POC is oh let's just get something that works. But mm -hmm. Really, I think the important thing is to define viable as generating real value for the business. And so it's not just getting something that's working, we're not proving the concept, but we're choosing a very limited scope that we can actually deliver real value in. And so from that perspective, I think it becomes a lot easier to, to scale from that point because you're already generating value, you've already demonstrated, you can show that, that this method is working, it's not conceptual, it's not on test data, it's in production, and it's and you're able to, to to measure success for it, and so when you talk a little bit about designing that MVP, I always from the beginning like to think about it through uh, processes and frameworks. So, what I mean by that is is really what does that end-to-end -end and complete workflow look like, in from establishing the data pipeline to having you know cleansing the data to modeling to um, producing the final output. And so we're not defining the MVP as building a recommended engine. The MVP is actually going to be, all right, how do we pull data from some backend database, run the recommendation engine, display the results on a web page, and then track whether um, customers are actually clicking on it. Yeah. And so when you frame the scope of, you know, you can call it a POC, you can call it MVP, whatever mm -hmm. you want, but if that is the scope of, of the project that you're trying to do, um, and that's how you're measuring success, then that's going to be a lot easier to, to scale up because you already have the end-to-end -end flow working and then you can identify, all right, now if we want to release it to, you know, to, to different markets, to different product segments, it's, all right, identifying the bottlenecks that we've already built and then enhancing those. And the downside of that is that, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer to, to get set up initially, um, but I, you know, I think that's, that trade-off is worth it Otherwise, you end up with these POCs. Yeah, it looks good on paper. The business says, great, let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's run with it. And then the team goes, oh, well, actually, we need to kind of completely restructure, mm -hmm. you know, start, from, start back from stage one, where it's much easier if you're building in from the beginning. How does this fit into the, the existing tech stack? How is this going to fit into to the production? How can we look at it from, from the end-to-end -end side, end-to-end -end process, and then when you're talking about scaling, it's really just focusing on which components are a bottleneck in that, in that complete flow. Yeah. So how long would you typically consider for building an MVP? So I think it, you really want to choose very limited scope for it. Um, and so in my mind, if you can't get it done within a quarter, then you're doing mm -hmm. something wrong. <laughs> um, so it's, and, and that should be kind of the entire process. Um, mm -hmm. I think another important thing that, that comes with looking at it from the end-to-end -end view is that you really have to make sure that you're getting 
um, buy-in from from the business that there is you have the support to do this, and that also you're going to also have the cross-team collaboration. So kind of going back to our example, the recommendation engine, yeah. you can have your team do everything that you want to to build the actual um, machine learning algorithm at the core, mm. but you're going to need the support of data engineers to be able to get the data that you need, get it in high quality, you need the support from the front-end teams to, to actually be able to display the results. And so when you're sitting down, you're scoping this out, that's those types of considerations. Those are the types of questions that you need to know and you need to have answers to up front. You don't want to get halfway through it and go, oh, actually I need you guys to to build in you know, an entire section of the website that can display the products and then all of a sudden yeah. you're getting pushback from them on how they have their own, their own initiatives, they don't have the bandwidth for it, and X, Y, and Z. And so I think getting that buy-in, getting the aligning on that scope and then really having the target of how can we generate business value from the beginning makes the whole process a lot easier for it. And I think you'll also be surprised to find in that in a lot of cases, the actual machine learning algorithm is only one really small part when it mm. comes to, to solving that business problem, right? It's gonna be the data that you have available that you're feeding into it. It's gonna be how are you presenting the results on, on to the final end user. It's going to be um, how are you defining kind of the success criteria when you're recommending the product? So all those types of questions are so much <clears throat> arguably more important than fine-tuning the end model that you use with that, that I think a lot of people just get too caught up in, in oh, we need to have you know, some very deep expertise in this modeling that really need to understand these exactly the inner workings of this model. But when you're looking for how are we gonna drive more, more revenue from cross-selling, that's you know attributing to the exact model. It's I think it's going to be um, relatively small compared to those other components that I talked about. Yeah, clear. Yeah, and so when it comes to the actual team developing these things, because there's a lot of different structures in which a team like this sits in an organization. Some organizations have center of excellences, or other organizations have a more um, hybrid model. I think there's a lot of different ways of doing this out there. What yeah, has your preference? I think it's going to depend on the organization, but there are a couple really important factors that I think are universal um, no matter how, whether you're doing a center of excellence or having it sit into the business. And the biggest and the, one of the biggest areas that I saw and I continue to see that, that I don't think gets enough attention is the importance of having domain expertise sitting as close as possible to the technical side. And so I think this really comes into play from anywhere from the feature selection to um, some sort of, any sort of anomalies or things that may look strange or how, what should the final output look like or even what is the ob objective criteria that, that you're trying to optimize for. You really need to have the business providing input on that in someone from the business who has at least a conceptual understanding of what's happening on the technical side, because yeah. I think I, you know, I would see some of these uh, these PhD physicists, data scientists, who you could sit them in a room and they would build this amazing model that would really, by all of their quantitative metrics, really be great, and there it's not overfit, and and it performs well out of sample, and and on paper it looks great, but the results aren't very sensical, or they're not optimizing for for um, the right the right criteria, and so you really need to have 
that that business's input every step of the way to to um, to make sure that it's in line with that. I remember one tangible example of of where this was not done correctly is there was um, <clears throat> a data science team and they were building, trying to build uh, an internal kind of search algorithm for uh, for the the internal wiki. So they had as a massive organization. They said, "All right, we have so much knowledge locked away in these." Um, internal kind of pages and confluence pages, things like that. And so they wanted to say, all right, it'd be great if we could build some sort of way that as a user you could search across it and then surface information that, that you would find. And, and so the, uh, the, the team was like, all right, we're gonna set up a POC, we're gonna get some super smart people working on it, but they were working completely in silo. And they oh, said, wow. all right, well, we, we built it, the, the recommendation works great, it relies on these tags of these pages, and that was the, the best, um, the best metric. So you know everything is perfect, and then they present it to the to the board, and and, and uh, everything's great. And then someone goes, "Oh, well, where do these tags come from?" And then someone, you know, sitting in the back room goes, "Well, actually, my team, you know, went through and tagged it all ahead of hand." And so now, when you're thinking about it, oh yeah, it worked, you know, for these thousand pages that we did. But now if we look across having ten thousand pages. Oh, wow. Are you really going to have to have someone sit down and tag every single one of these? For this model, for the search algorithm to work, and that's a you know a great example of how they have someone from the business that was sitting next to them, they would have identified from the beginning that oh yeah, this was all done manually. It's not really going to be a valuable input for the model because um, because the whole point of this was to reduce manual work. If you're going to have someone go through every single page, you know you might as well you know that's already solving the problem. You're not needing any sort of a search <laughs> algorithm from there. So I think that's that's an area where it really really shows the importance of having that domain expertise and you know that kind of going back to earlier in my career, you see that with these traders and these are you know guys in their 50s, not technical mm -hmm. at all, but they would really understand the the domain the space, the financial markets, and so being able to leverage their experience, leverage their understanding. And then the trick is, all right, how can we quantify that, or how can we transfer that knowledge into an algorithm? That's a, that's a lot of the key work for it. Yeah. And how do you deal with this now within Suit Supply? Yeah. So I think Suit Supply is is somewhat of a, a unique case in the sense that a big part of 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 the Suit Supply brand and the value offering is still having that personal connection. So if you ever visit the store, which I highly recommend that you do, um, you know a lot of it is 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 getting the one-on-one -on -one attention from the sales professionals. They'll walk you through every step of the way in terms of finding the right fit for you. What's what's going to look good? Have you tried this? Here's a great style that I think could could fit. Whether it's you know a suit that you're wearing every day or just going to a wedding or things like that. And so part of the brand is is having that personal touch. We see that with the customer service side. If you call the customer service line or you send a chat. There's not any, you know, press one for this. It's not any automated message you receive. A lot of that is is um, still having that 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 connection and that that personal that personal touch. That's not going to um, that's really important for 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 the brand. And so a lot of the work that we do is how can we augment or how can we improve or how can we make more efficient the work of whether it's a sales professional, customer service agent. Um, some of the category teams when it comes to buying who really understand the product, really understand the customer, and so it's giving them the right information that they do to make their, make their jobs better. And so a lot of the time that I spend here is really trying to understand 
what is the business problem, what are their intuitions about why, why they want to do it this way, um, what data is important to them, how do they want to look at it, and, and really understanding the, the problem on the business end, and then how can we use some of these analytics techniques to solve that. And so really making sure that everything we do is driven by the business, it's not something that, that we're running with and then trying to drag the business along and get buy-in for, it's up front, what are the problems you're having, and then how can we solve those. And I think you'd be somewhat surprised that a lot of these a lot of these seemingly AI and machine learning problems, you can get maybe 80% of the way there with a well-designed dashboard and something else <laughs> that I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to hear. Um, and yeah, if you're at Google or Facebook, that's not going to be the case. Um, but for a lot of the times, giving the right people the right information at the right time is, is going to have much, much better results than trying to, to automate the whole process. And once again, that comes back to what use case you're working on. When all the problems that we're facing are open-ended, the, the constraints and the rules aren't very well known up front, and so trying to account for all those test cases, whether it's things like um, you know, certain different uh, events during the season, you know, things like a, maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a certain fashion trend that's coming out, and you're gonna drive yourself crazy trying to account for all of these, these edge cases, but at the same time, you give the knowledge to someone who really understands that, who has seen a similar case, you know, two years ago, and and you know this one store, then then they can identify, pick up on it, and then we try to create the feedback loop where that comes back to us to to improve and moving forward. Yeah. So within the let's say fashion and retail space, where do you see that artificial intelligence or machine mm -hmm. learning uh, can can make the difference? I think a lot in coming back to to the specific case here at Suit Supply is a lot of the supply chain. So. We're a very vertical, vertically integrated company in the sense that we own the end-to-end -end supply chain all the way from the fabrics, um, creating the mills, to the factories that produce it, to, to the warehouses. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities there for us to get smarter in terms of how we're planning our buys, how are we setting the budgets. So I think that's, that's one, and that's a lot that happens behind the scenes that you don't necessarily see. Uh, I think the second is around empowering the, the, the face of the business, whether it's the sales professionals or the customer services agents with the most valuable information at the right time. And so that's providing 360 views into the customer, maybe not providing completely automated product recommendations, although that's one very interesting use case for the website, but giving that to the sales professionals to say, all right, here's what we think the customer would want. They're able to use that as an input along with leveraging their own expertise and their own knowledge with the customer. And so I would say it's <clears throat> those are the, the, the two ones that are more interesting to talk about. And then I think the other one that, that really adds a lot of value too is, is um, just automating the process. And I think that's um, whether that you can classify that as RPA or <laughs> whatever it may be. But if you look at it, all right, what's the business problem that looking to solve? A lot of the times, the, the analytics piece is one small part of it, and there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, maybe it's just automating the data collection process instead of receiving it by email, setting up some FTP that picks it up, processes it, and then makes it available to them so they're not having to do the work. So I think it's going to be you know, different on, depending on each company, but at the end of the day, it's really coming down to what is the business actually asking for, is this, and what's the best solution for that, and then remembering that a lot of these AI machine learnings are a means to an end and not an, an end of it itself. So 
Um, I think that's one, one very important message when it comes to, to when you're trying to figure out how to be successful in this space. Yeah. And to what extent does um, the cloud <laughs> influence this, as in like speed to move, et cetera? What are your experience with, experiences with that? It, it's really amazing in, in how much, even in the last two years, uh, some of these big cloud providers have the tools and the, the frameworks and, and the offerings and the services they provide can let companies do more for less. Um, <clears throat> so for instance, we're working in, in Azure, um, but I have experience with you know, Google Cloud as well as AWS. And I won't get into the, the pros and cons of each one, but the, the amount that a small team of, you know, call them data engineers, call them machine learning engineers, call them you know, BI developers, whatever it may be, the amount that they can do with, with working called a green field with open-ended and being able to develop kind of cloud native is, is really amazing. I mean, if you look at something like uh, being able to ingest real-time streaming data, you know, two, three years ago even, that's taking, you know, a team of five uh, months to develop. Now you can have a team of two set something up and, you know, in, in a week or two, and then it gets it up and running just by leveraging the offerings that they have. So uh, from that perspective, it's just doing, being able to do a lot more with a lot less. Uh, a lot of benefit too in, in scalability, which you hear, you know, now oh, we're running out of space, we need more performance, then it's just upgrading to the next tier of offering, offerings, which you can do from a dashboard in five minutes and instantaneously see, see the results. So that's really been, really been game changing. And then also being able to, to offload the, the maintenance and infrastructure to these providers. And so really allows us to focus on what our core competencies are, what's the areas that are unique to our business and not really have to think about about a lot of these headaches that come along with managing our own infrastructure um, that once again even just a couple years ago you had to have you know system admins infra teams all of that all working together just to get keep the lights on um, so now a lot of those resources can can be helping push the envelope and, and taking the next step and, and really what can we do to, to drive the drive the company forward yeah so you, you mentioned briefly the types of roles, like data engineering roles and machine learning engineer roles. I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I would almost call it noise around these roles and what they entail. So can you give an explanation of what you um, yeah, look for in people with it, that work within that space? Good question. So I think one of the, just the nature of that we're working in now the two things that we look for in, in, in our new hires are, are one, um, a strong understanding of the underlying processes and, and really good idea of, of theoretically how are things working, um, whether that's data modeling, whether that's um, productionalizing models, whether that's understanding how to um, you know, scale up infrastructure. So I think there's, there's <clears throat> not going to be any way uh, around that. So I think you really need to have that strong, that strong, deep understanding of the theory separate from the actual tools that you're using to get there. And then on top of that, and it may sound a little bit uh, um, contradictory, we look for people that can are able to learn and pick up new things fast. Because every, you know, just yesterday, Azure comes out with some new, new offering that, oh, this might be interesting for our team. It sounds, seems like it solves a good one of our problems, so we need someone who can 
you know, pick it up from scratch and and be willing and comfortable running with it and and getting um, getting it into production, you know, within within a single sprint. So those are the the two things: is that having that strong conceptual understanding, as well as the ability to learn and, and keep pace with the the amount of new offerings and products that are being released all the time, whether it's by the big cloud providers or other independent vendors. And then I'm not sure if it was part of your question, but in terms <laughs> of the scope of the roles, the way we look at it, um, I see data engineer as more a lot of building the ETL, um, ETL jobs, the data pipeline, um, and then that can kind of encroach into a little bit of a BI developer, which I see more focused on the data modeling side, and I still very much see that there's a need for those types of roles, even in companies that are really see themselves as having machine learning and AI at their core, because having that a well well thought out and well structured data model on the back end just solves so much problems if you're if you're a data scientist, and then a machine learning engineer is going to be a little bit more niche. They need to have an understanding of how do these models actually run and as well as the infrastructure side, the data pipeline side, um, and be able to put the pieces all together to get a model running um, in, a, in a production environment, which is no easy task. But I think going back to, to thinking about it as terms of, all right, from our initial scope, we looked at this as the end-to-end -end process, it becomes a lot easier than having something that's only running locally or only running on test data, and then trying to fit that into a production system um, somehow is a lot more challenging than if it's designed from the beginning to, to fit into a production system. Yeah, yeah. and so when you look at those rules, for example, um, the overlap between a machine learning engineer, data engineer, and a data scientist, do you believe in more kind of cross-functional mm -hmm. profiles or more of the specialist type of profiles? I am a big fan of the, the um, cross-function profiles. <clears throat> I think having, really needing to have um, clear handoffs is is difficult uh, across teams. If if I think there is, you know, there's always going to be a specialization between a data science spectrum and the data engineer spectrum, and the machine learning engineer sits a little bit in the middle. So I think you need to have the data engineer is having some basic understanding of the data science side, and the data scientist needs to have some basic um, understanding of the data engineering side. And so, I, at the very least, I see them sitting on the same team, working very closely side by side, whether that sits in the business, whether that sits in some sort of center of excellence, but it's important that they have a good understanding of what the other team does, how they work, what they're actually doing, and. You know, there are countless examples of, of um, you know, handoffs where, you know, someone gets handed a model, told to put into production, and then they have to spend three months trying to rewrite the code from Python into whether it's C++ or something else that runs in a production environment, having no idea, or, you know, having some um, data scientists having no idea how the data gets to them, and then when they try to go push it into production, they realize, oh, well, this data source is only you know, only gets sent to us every week, whereas this one is coming in daily, whereas, you know, oh, here, this is a, you know, this source requires some manual input, like uh, my previous example, or whatever it may be. And so, while you're always gonna have people that have their core competencies, I think it's really important to, to have, to sit, at the very least, sit side by side and work very closely with the counterpart when it comes to kind of three distinct roles, the data side, the modeling side, and then the productionization. And in a perfect scenario, you have people that, that understand the whole process. 
Great. Yeah, thank you so much for the thorough explanation. Um, maybe a final question, uh, just out of pure interest, but what are you excited about right now when it comes to a new development or trend within the space of, let's say, analytics and artificial intelligence? What am I excited about? Um, so I think for me, I really like to see the, the transition from from insights to a little bit more of um, you know another very consulty term from insights to action. But <laughs> what I what I mean by that is is not necessarily showing you that oh there's a uh, you know we're seeing increased uh, revenue in this particular segment, but being able to get insights into why that's happening. So I think another another way to say that would be to trying to move from correlation to causality, and that's. A very difficult problem. I think a lot of people look at correlation and see causality, but there's some really interesting work being done in the space of really how do you infer what the causality is and not just the correlation. And I see that as something that was very, very difficult to do just a couple years ago, but now we're starting to see some really cool techniques um, in the space that are that are able to not only infer that but present that into a digestible, consumable manner to someone with a with a more of a business background. And so. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's some good examples, some companies doing some really interesting stuff in the space. And so I'm really excited to see how that, how that goes forward because I think that's um, the next logical step, especially when it comes to more of the decision support, um, you know, improving the, the, the efficiency and, and, all, and the information that are given to, um, given to people who really have a domain understanding of it. And, and um, yeah, so I think we'll, I'm excited to see how that, how that progresses in the next couple of years. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dad. I, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. And any final message? No, um, yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> I enjoyed it as well. So I think for me, if you, if you have a, a couple takeaways from this, is that one, always look at this from the, what is the business problem that you're trying to solve? Is machine learning and AI really even what you need to, to solve that in the best way? Two, Talk, think about MVPs over POCs, and MVP really is define, defining viable as something that's generating business value from day one. Uh, three, from the beginning, think about the framework, think about automation, think about the end, end process, and then um, always, always link and label. So how much, what is this generating in terms of dollars, in terms of cost savings, in terms of time savings that you're working on? And I think if you kind of Go through those, or at least frame the, the question, the frame the problem in those in that in that space. I think you're have a much higher chance of success for getting these initiatives off the ground and not stuck endlessly releasing POCs that don't really go anywhere. So uh, I think those would be my final takeaways. But generally, it's an exciting space to be, and and um, excited even from the, in the space of suit supply to see uh, how we're able to, to take the brand to the next level by leveraging some of these techniques. Great. Well, thanks for this amazing summary, and yeah, thanks again. That was it for this episode of the Human-Centered AI Podcast. If you like this episode or have any feedback, do not hesitate and reach out to us at deus.ai. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.